Hello and welcome to the Pre-Raphaelite Society podcast brought to you by the Pre-Raphaelite Society. Uh, today it's a pleasure to be joining one of the founding members of the podcast team, Sherry Schrader, and she's going to be talking to us a little bit about exoticism and the Pre-Raphaelites. Uh, Sherry, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and um, sort of the work you do and the research you've been involved with? Sure. Um, thank you for having me. Um, I just finished my master's last spring, and so my research focused on Orientalism, looking with framing the Pre-Raphaelites under the Orientalist discourse. And so I focused on three different subject matters, um, a religious context, exotic, exoticism, and also design context. And so using those three, three areas, I um, focused on the work of William Holman Hunt using his religious work, uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti for exoticism, and William Morris for design. And so I'm continuing my research in that area, uh, working currently with Ford Maddox Brown and The Dream of Sardopolis, which is a piece that is held at several museums. There's several versions of it, but the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, where I work, um, does have the original um, drawing that he did uh, for work for William Michael Rossetti. Fantastic. And you work, you work in, a, in a museum, don't you? So does that bring you into contact with um, pre-Raphaelite art at all, um, apart from the, the one you've just mentioned? Not so much right now. Um, the museum I work at, we only have a very small number of pre-Raphaelite works, and they're all pretty much works on paper, so they're not on display. They're kept in storage. Um, luckily, as I worked on my master's, I um, got to um, go upstairs and they would pull pieces for me so that I could look through the files and look at those pieces in person, which is so much better than just an online image. And so I do have access to those pieces, um, or sometimes I have access to those pieces. Um, thanks to working here at the museum and as well as when I was a graduate student, they gave us access. That's fantastic. Well, I'm always very jealous of people that work in museums and art galleries. Um, could, you, could you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing at the moment on the Ford Maddox Brown? Uh, yeah, so it's a wonderful piece. It is based off Lord Byron's poem. A Sardopolis, and it is going off of um, the section where he is laying down um, as the battle rages and Mira is consoling him. Um, and so it's a different version of Sardopolis. Most people are familiar with the Delacroix and the carnage and, you know, all this drama. And this one is a really contemplative piece. Um, he's reclined against Mira and he's dreaming and you can see the battle going on in the background. Um, but what drew me to it was the background on it. You have the soldiers, but you also have these beautiful renditions of Assyrian pieces 
And it was because the British Museum had just acquired pieces um, from the Middle East. And so he was going and seeing these pieces in person and also reading everything that was being published about them. And so they're wonderful sketch work for these um, that he did. And the picture was originally done for William Michael Rossetti's um, compilation of Byron's poems. And so the next part of my research is I'm wanting to go to the Delaware Museum of Art where they have the painting painted version, which is the second version of this um, picture. There was four versions, um, one's or two are missing. And then there is one at the British Museum, which is a um, printing of it, but it's a rendition of it. It's by another artist. Um, so some well, work to do there. <laughs> it does sound really interesting. And, and I, I can see exactly with the uh, Middle Eastern, the, the Assyrian themes, how this fits into your idea of sort of Orientalism and exoticism. Now, for people who might not be familiar with those terms, could you just unpack them a little bit? Sort of how are you using them and what, what do they mean? Yeah, sure. Um, so Orientalism was really... The term's been around for a long time and it's changed in meaning over time. Um, but Edward Said in the 70s wrote a book, Orientalism, and it was unpacking really imperialistic tendencies that the West has taken towards the East. And so he was looking at not necessarily art, but just in general, you see it in art literature politics, um, any news piece, it was just travelers, um, especially you would see it in how people traveled to the East, but um, dealing that it's not a passive, um, a passive thought process. There is forethought that, um, and it's not with an intention necessarily of harming the people of the East, but it's the way we look at the East. And so it was dealing with elaboration, intention, distributing the information. And people were taking like writings from the Middle East, um, especially in the 19th century. Arabian Nights had been translated. There was two major translations and it was a very popular book. But then people were thinking that if they went to the Middle East, they were going to find you know, like the Middle East stuck in the, you know, second century, 10th century, that they were behind in time, like frozen in time. They weren't caught up to the 19th century Western world. And so, of course, you can see this in art and and that's where I delve into it. Um, the French are most known as being the Orientalists, um, Delacroix, Jerome, and these artists who exoticize the women there. Every the women are always very flimsily dressed or very or nude. Um, they're helped by dark colored servants. Um, the women are always very light colored in skin, and so it was like this whole. It just kept adding to the mythology of the East. Um, Linda Nochlin, um, who was an art historian, she took what Edward Said did and applied it to fine arts. 
And so some of it, I mean, it definitely all carries over and it's that intention and how people looked at, at the East. But what she did is she also set up um, other things. So you see like a lackadaisical view of how people, you don't see them being industrious. Everyone's playing checkers, sitting back smoking on the hookah, um, drinking tea, reclining, reading a book. They're not, you don't see paintings of people working in a mine or, you know, hard labor. Um, the laborers are always off to the side doing something else. Um, the women being exoticized, you see um, it, it's a timeless place. So like I said, people thought like the Middle East froze in time and somehow did not progress like the rest of the Western world. Um, so you can't ever put the painting into perspective as far as like what time period it is. Um, the clothing is a mishmash. Um, some of it's modern, so a lot of it's um, older, cent centuries old. Um, and so using those two as my primary theories, there's a lot of theories on um, Orientalism, but I use those as my background as far as like pulling and dissecting the works of those artists that I worked on for my thesis and how they fit into those patterns that um, that we see in other artists um, like I said like the French artists um, because the British aren't as well known for their orientalist tendencies it, just, just while you were talking there I was thinking of pre-Raphaelite artists that immediately spring out as possibly fitting this orientalist mindset that you've described. And I, I thought straight away of Holman Hunt. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking particularly in the rich, jeweled way that he presents the East. And I, I, I don't think you can really visualise the power of that until you're stood in front of one of his works and quite how rich and colorful and exotic those colors are definitely um he is definitely one i think you need to see his work in person to really see those tones and how beautiful they are they're bright and vibrant um in the u.s we don't have as much access to the pre-raphaelite work and luckily there was a beautiful exhibit Radical Victorian, Victorian radicals. I, I'm totally blanking on it, but I got to go to San Antonio and see it as part of part of my research, and that was one one of them I used for my thesis was the finding of the Savior in the temple. And as I was walking through the gallery, um, it just pulled me in the bright colors and the size of it and the amount of detail. He is so detailed in his work and. I was just so taken and it the pictures that you see in books and online they just don't do justice to his work um and that yeah right after that trip I actually took a course on orientalism and that was all, that was all that I had was William Holman Hunt's 
um, name screaming at me, like those images I had seen. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I know where I'm going with this work now. (laughs) Yeah, I I can see how it definitely creates this image in our mind of the East as somewhere completely ethereal and mystical and steeped in these sort of transcendental colours. The the one that the Harmon Hunt painting that really struck me when I first saw it in the flesh was the scapegoats. I don't know if that's one you've you've studied or come across before. I have. Um, unfortunately, I have not seen it in person. Um, it's definitely on my list um, for when I travel next. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at it and it's just like this timeless place you just and the colors are just so vibrant and you've got the sky and the you know the sand and you know the goat and it's just like so steeped in tradition but so simple at the same time and but it just again hits that timeless like where is the you know when is this you have no no clues as to when that's supposed to have taken place yeah i mean if if you it took the goat out of the picture it, it's a it's a like a lunar landscape it's really bizarre it, it, you're like i can see what you mean by the timelessness of it it you, you could be on it on a different planet with some of the colors that are, that are happening in that in that painting um we had we had a talk recently at the pre-raphaelite society by um by lynn roberts who focused on the frames of the paintings mm-hmm. and that um she used some uh, the scapegoat and some of the Holman Hunt works and looked at the framing of them and how the frames incorporated sort of religious imagery and Eastern geometrical patterning. Um, She spoke a lot about Rossetti using uh, Eastern geometry in in the roundels on some of the frames of his work. Um, How have you explored Rossetti and exoticism or orientalism um that that's a great one because the frames do play such an important part and i think holman hunt used the frames a lot but rossetti definitely used the frames a lot um and it's one of those it must be a conservation nightmare but they're such an important part of the the pieces i mean i think if you took away the frames you only have part of the story especially um, the piece from Rossetti I focused on was Astarte Syriaca, which is part of his Venus series. And the outs, the framework um, is absolutely beautiful. It has the moon and it has um, the stars and it's dealing with the, the tradition of Venus. If you go all the way back to the original Venus, um, it's Astarte or Ishtar and from the Middle East. And so she's represented by a um, crown that has a quarter moon and then stars. And so he incorporated that work into the frame. And then the roundels also have Middle Eastern um, techniques instilled into them. And it's it's a, a part of the story and how you can tell who she is um, without seeing the title. 
which I think is great. And in the bottom of his frame, he incorporates just a small bit from the poem that doubles with the, the painting. And Rossetti was really great because being a poet and an art a painter, he could he did double works. And so you had a corresponding poem that went with the painting. And one helps tell the story of the other. Um, and so Astarte, he used Jane Morris as his model. And then May Morris was one of the messengers in it. And he's telling the story of the original Venus. And, and so he's describing her and, and using her from Middle Eastern mythology, but she has still a very, in his depiction, a very Greek or Roman version of Venus in his depiction. Yeah, it's a strange, strange kind of hybridity, isn't it? So you've got, you, you've got a, an Assyrian sort of early version of Venus filtered through this idea of classical mythology, the classical constructions of Venus, and then Rossetti using a very, well, a, a very sort of white European model through which to depict that. It, and, and then, again, the idea of the um, complementary sort of poems and the paintings, it's... It's an unusual approach, isn't it? It's it's not depicting the Middle East in a very straightforward manner, as, as you might expect with, say, Holman Hunt. Do you think that might dilute some sense of meaning? I think when you look at, like, if you were comparing Rossetti to Holman Hunt and how they depict the Middle East, it's definitely diluted. Um, Holman Hunt, he was he wanted to stay so true to what he was seeing and he was the only one who actually was traveling um out of him and Rossetti he was the only one who traveled to the Middle East he wanted to have that truth um truth in nature that Ruskin you know was elaborating on and he wanted that honesty in his work and he thought the only way to be honest was to actually travel and depict what he saw or what he wanted to see um, in some terms. But Rossetti, on the other hand, he was taking like bits and pieces. He was pulling and he was so inspired by like the Japanese and the Asian art and then the Middle Eastern. And so you get little bits and pieces and like traditional classic Roman, you get these bits and pieces and they're all melded together to create like this perfect vision that he has. Um, and so, yeah, you still get that very Western feel, but then you have the Asian and the Middle Eastern influences sprinkled in. Um, so it, it's an interesting contrast between the two of them. And, and it's, it gets into, you know, that wishful thinking, uh, you know, that everything's the Arabian nights <laughs> and every, yeah, you know, like you're going to have the genie and you're going to have, you know, Aladdin and you're going to have all these different parts and the princess. And, and he had that very Western vision though, of what he thought he was going to see if he had gone. Hmm. And so, so you also said you also mentioned that you worked with William Morris and you looked at some of 
his use of patterning uh, in a decorative sense. Um, I, I suppose when I think of William Morris's designs, I'm thinking of maybe a sort of Northern European, almost Gothic style of print. Um, how, how do you think the ideas of Orientalism apply to William Morris? Is, is it due to the, the patterning and the geometry in his work? Definitely. Um, he was really fascinated um, by the techniques that the Middle Eastern like rug makers used. Mm. And he helped museums acquire um, Safavid um, rugs. And some of them are, you know, beyond amazing, especially the condition that he was helped, you know, like he became a, a an expert in these, you know, pat in the pattern work and then in the technique. And then he was bringing it over to his own work. But um, you definitely see it in the patterns. He, even though he was using Northern Europeans uh, flowers and foliage and stuff, he was incorporating them and weaving them together how you would see Islamic um, tessellation work was put together. And so that was interesting. And then in my research, I worked just specifically with Peacock and Dragon. And it's um, a peacock, of course, more of an Eastern animal. It's not, you know, known to be, you know, native to the West, but they were fascinated with peacocks, especially in the 19th century in England. And as this whole rise of um, Orientalist mania, as Holman Hunt called it, um, came about. And so he incorporates the peacock and then he has a dragon. And so when I was trying to place where this dragon came from, like where this design, I looked through all of the different mythology of dragons and dragon designs. And the closest I could come to was actually a phoenix. And so as I was going through my research, I found another, um, several scholars who were like, it's not your typical prototypical, you know, European dragon. It, it looks more like a phoenix and it's sort of dive bombing. It's got these feathers. Um, and so I was like, well, a phoenix is more, you know, that's an Eastern mythology also. And so I was seeing how he was incorporating these, this passion he had for um, the Islamic work and Middle Eastern influence into his own textile designs. And so there's only a few that really scream Middle Eastern, you know, style, but Peacock and Dragon's definitely one of them. There's a couple more from that time period, but um, yeah, it was interesting how he, he took like what they were doing so well and he incorporated it and made it European. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the sort of three artists we've spoken about today, they all do seem to have quite a deep reverence for the Middle East almost. Does that almost feed the narrative that we're created an image in the West of how we expect the East to be? It, it, it's a complex problem because um, as I was 
learning, you know, really researching into different theories on Orientalism, you get into the big O and the little O. There's mm. ones who sort of slide by, they don't mean anything, you know. It, it, again, it's not meant to be harmful um, in how they're depicting the East. It's just a warped sense of the East and this imperialistic tendency that we're going to take and make it our vision, not look at it for what it actually is. And um, I, I definitely think there's a lot of reverence for the East behind their work and good intentions. And I don't think any of them really were trying to be like harmful (laughs) and, you know, put these bad stereotypes out there. Um, It's just not necessarily true to what the East, how the East was at that point in time. Yeah. So perhaps for us as, as viewers or or readers for the, maybe the more poetic end of it, perhaps it's just an acknowledgement of that for us, that what we're seeing or reading is not, true in 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 that sense it's a constructed identity definitely i think that's one of those we have to just keep in mind keep in the back of our mind and i think that's why it's important is to acknowledge to even acknowledge it um Mm. there's not a lot of work putting the orient uh the pre-raphaelites into an orientalist context um that was one of the things that actually fascinated me when I started trying to narrow down a, a subject for my research is I didn't want to tread on the same topics we see day in and day out on the pre-Raphaelites. I wanted to do something a little different where I didn't feel like I was just rewriting someone else's work. Yeah. Um, and so it's one of those, I think, just being aware of it and understanding the imperialistic nature of where we're coming from and mm. how Britain and France were their their places that they had instilled themselves in the Middle East and how that was developing definitely at that time. Um, and our inter like how they interacted with people. Um, so it, it's an interesting, it's a weird situation. It is, and, and I think I, I'm, I'm just sitting listening to you talk here, and I, I, I'm thinking about the ways in which the pre-Raphaelites might have bent the Western European mind as, as to actually how the European medieval past was, and it, it, it almost wasn't this jeweled, colourful, beautiful spectacle. You know, the, the, imagine the majority of the medieval past was was quite grim and dirty and not very pleasant you know we have these ideas of the 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 trapped female in the tower and these brave knights and it it, it's a very strange shift from the past I, I, I guess in both respects yeah that's a that's a really good point is how they take the medieval subjects even you know because I think of like the Lady of Shalott or or any of those from the medieval you know king arthur stories that they depicted but everything yeah very bright and clean and and austere and beautiful and and they definitely (laughs) have this beautiful fantastical world um that but if we went to reality you know it's like the you know 
that rose-colored lens has taken off. Yeah, very much. It's um, it's an interesting discussion in the construction of sort of historical identity and 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 where people sort of are and how they how they view themselves in the world really and, and how that view shaped and where it comes from mm-hmm. definitely one well, and it makes you think about um if people you know if that's what everyone knows as the images of the past what people would really think if they saw the past and you know and it's like that technicolor is taken away and you know realities hits them like a wall you know it, it would just be really shocking <laughs> I think you're probably right there you mentioned you're working with a Ford Maddox Brown painting at the moment um sketch at the moment apologies have you got any other plans in mind or is that where your focus is at the moment that's where my focus is at the moment. Um, I'm an independent scholar, so um, I do work at a museum, but I'm not inside the you know research end of it or the curatorial side. And so all of my work's done after hours. Yeah. So it it's a unique challenge, um, <laughs> limited hours in the day. And so I'm focusing on the Ford Maddox Brown, but I, I sort of wait and see what speaks to me mm. as the William Holman Hunt did um, and and see what draws me in as far as my research. I've also done some work um, dealing with the do some mythology and Edward Byrne Jones. And so that that's another side area I, I'm really enjoying, too. So I'd like to delve deeper into that as well as the Orientalist side. Sounds fantastic, and I'm sure we'll be hearing you, hearing lots more from you in uh, any future podcast episodes. I look forward to it. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you very much, Sherry, for your time for joining us for this episode, and uh, well, we'll hear more from you shortly. If you'd like to find out more information about the Pre-Raphaelites and the Pre-Raphaelite Society, please visit our website at www preraphaelitesociety.org and consider subscribing to our journal. Uh, Thank you very much again, Sherry. Thank you.